Our Father, we're thankful for your grace toward us and that without that grace, our hearts would be in rebellion against you. And it's only because you reached out and first loved us that we can in any way respond to you. And we pray tonight that you'd continue to reach out to us and enlighten our hearts to who you are, that we may trust you in ever-widening areas. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, to kind of orient, um, keep in mind that we are still working with the event of creation and that this event uh, basically teaches three areas of truth, or three areas of doctrine. One is the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, and the doctrine of nature. And those are three things taught by many events of the Bible, but we're spending a lot of time working with just creation. Because at creation, these things are, are laid down. It's the foundation for everything else that follows. So that's where we are. We're still working with that. The handout tonight, you'll see, advances us to chapter 3, where we're starting to talk not just about God now, but we're going to enlarge and talk about man, who man is, and nature, the nature around us, the universe. We've also said that whenever we, if we're going to treat uh, our topic in a biblical way, in a thoroughly biblical way, we want to remember that whenever we talk about God or any characteristic of God, that he is the creator, we are in the creation. And whatever we talk about up in the character of God, these qualities, they are similar, and that's why we use the capital Q, these qualities are similar to qualities in the creature, but they're not identical. And the reason we keep saying this is to show why, in Christianity, God is always declared to be incomprehensible. Not that we can't know him. We can know him, but we only know him partially, never fully and completely never exhaustively. Why we do that? Because that cuts off rationalism. That cuts off an attempt by man to encompass everything with his own head. So we keep saying, whether we're dealing with the attribute of God's omniscience, his omnipresence, his sovereignty, his love, whatever the attribute, whatever the characteristic of God is that we're looking at, it is always incomprehensible. It's always mysterious. It always has things about it that we may never understand. Because that's the nature of the creator-creature distinction. God cannot be encompassed and comprehensively and exhaustively understood. And for that very reason, the approach to God that we are using is not an approach of rationalism. It's an approach of revelation. God has to reveal himself to us. And that is because he is incomprehensible. Imagine a person, and you've all had the experience, a person who you wanted to know very badly, get to know, and they never talk to you. Uh, they're, they're withdrawn. You can just feel a wall. And you know that you can't get in their head if they, you don't talk to them or if they don't share things with you. So that, that business of coming to know them is a dependent upon their revelation of themselves to you. 
while in a far, far greater way, our knowledge of God depends upon his willingness to share himself with us. And when he does share himself with us, when he does speak to us in history, that's revelation. So that's why we come to know God only because he first chooses to reveal himself to us. If he chose never to speak, we would never know him. We could sit and meditate all day long and go through all kinds of intellectual exercises and never know anything about God unless he chose to reveal himself. So that's why the Bible becomes very important. That's why the Bible is the heart of the Christian religion, the trust, is that if God never spoke and the Bible is not his word, then we can't know anything about him. It turns out, by virtue of creation, that because he has created the universe, the universe bears marks that are similar to his. And we'll notice some of those, as particularly in the handout that we gave you tonight, that one uh, is going to, you're going to see it more sharply. We talked about this before, but that's the one that you start to see this in, in a clearer way. Well, last time we, we looked at some of these qualities of God. We said that God was omnipresent and that that is a quality of absolute immensity. That's the, and the only analog that we have to that down here is that we, have, we have, speak of space. Space is three dimensions. And we have our power of our imagination to transport ourselves, close our eyes and transport ourselves in space. And that's somehow maybe a little bit more similar to his omnipresence, that he can be everywhere at once. Then we talked about the fact that God is also uh, omnipotent and that he is all-powerful. We said that what characterizes God is he's energetic, he never gets tired, he is limitless in his energy, and we are limited in ours. We have a conservation of energy principle that operates, that we have certain boundaries and we, we, can't, we can't go above those boundaries. So, while we have some of that which we would call experience of an energetic or energy, uh, energetic nature, God is the archetype of all energy. After all, he, uh, he possessed this attribute before he created any of the energy, which goes back to something else we want to remind you as we go through all of these attributes, one after another. Keep in mind that all of those attributes pre-existed the creation. Okay? So they're not dependent on the creation. And this is important because in some religions, this gets to be a big problem, particularly the pseudo-Christian religions. They all have a problem with this. And we'll see two of the attributes where this creates a big problem with Islam today. But in Christianity, God, is, because he's the creator, he's over and distinct from his creation, and he did not need the universe to develop himself. He did not need the universe to have more characteristics. So we've said that he is omnipresent. We've said that he's omnipotent. We also said last time that he is immutable. He never changes. He never changes in character. 
And we qualified that by showing you Exodus chapter 32, where Moses prayed to God, and it says in the text that God repented or changed his mind. So we brought that text to your attention so you wouldn't misinterpret what we mean when we say God is immutable, he changes not, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't mean he's a statue. Immutability does not mean staticness, that God doesn't, isn't dynamic and he doesn't interact with us. All we're saying with immutability is that his character never changes. And that when he chooses to make a sovereign promise, and he swears, as Hebrews says, he swears by himself in the great covenants of Scripture, then those words hold true because he is immutable and his immutability backs up his promises. We won't go into it tonight, but that uh, attribute of immutability we're going to get seriously involved in in chapter 3 when we start talking about the nature of the universe and scientific knowledge. Okay, omnipotent, omniscience, immutability, and God is eternal. That he has an experience of the past, present, and future simultaneously. It's somehow you can figure that out. And whereas we can only experience time by living in an instant. And people who don't live in the present are usually considered crazy. So we are left with one little sliver of experience in time. Well, God, as Abraham, as, as Jesus said, before Abraham came to be, I am. A statement that can only mean that Jesus was claiming to be God, claiming to be eternal. He always existed and that he, so to speak, exists in, in all the moments. All right, now, we went last time, we closed at uh, page 28, where we talked about some of the more personal attributes of God. We call those the more communicable attributes of God. And we said that these attributes are attributes having to do more with his personality. These are things that maybe it's a little easier to envision. So we spoke of his sovereignty, and that's analogous to our choice. Our will. God has a super will he, of, this, of history. But also understand that sovereignty operated before the universe. That he chose to be what he chose to be. I mean, God, the sovereignty didn't begin operating when he put the universe into existence. And we said that we don't have any kind of a good model in our heads to think about this. And that's why oftentimes when you become a Christian, you know, you get into Romans 9 and you get into the potter and the clay and you, oh, gee, how do I work this out and how do I keep humans responsible and choice and all that and God's sovereignty. The reason we have problems with that is because of incomprehensibility. There's another case where because God is God and we're the creature, we can't get a hold of that. And it, it becomes particularly vexing in this area of sovereignty. So we, we become most personally aware of the incomprehensibility problem when we start talking about sovereignty. Because it's very hard and we, you feel it. You feel like it's out there somewhere and you just, your mind just can't uh, just get it. That's incomprehensibility. And that's where you back off and you trust what he has revealed of himself to us in the scriptures. That he is the author of all things. He works all things after the counsel of his will. Then we, uh, I think we got into, oh, we start, I guess we stop there. At the bottom of page 28, we take the attribute of his holiness. 
And by that, we're just referring to his righteousness and justice, and a lot of different authors use different terms for this. But we could, I just summarize it under H. Like I said, this is a survey of his attributes. You could go on and on and on, specialize in these studies, and come up with all kinds of attributes. But we haven't got time for that. Our job is just to kind of show you the basic, basic things here, basic truths. So holiness refers, as I say, to his righteousness and his justice. And if you look at page 28, where down in that last paragraph, where I say, by righteousness is meant his moral character is flawlessly consistent law unto itself. It is the standard throughout the cosmos for what is right and what is wrong. And that, you ought to mark that little, that little sentence because notice what we have just said. His character is the standard for what is right and what is wrong. Society is not the standard. Somebody's opinions are not the standard. If I do a Gallup poll and 53% of the population believe that such and such is right, that is not the standard. The standard is the holiness of God. Period. After that, we talk about whether man's standard approximates or is ac accurately follows his standard. But his character is a standard of right and wrong. And I want to press that home, and I told you to mark that, because as we go into chapter 3, I'm going to bring up some apologetic material there that is very critical in our modern society because there are people, including this teacher that I just read the story in the Washington Times, where we think we can have values and we deny God. And what we want to show you is that you cannot have values and deny God. If you deny God, you'll want to try to keep hold of values. And people desperately want the values, but they want the values without the God of the values. So they will try to perpetuate memories of values, or they'll try to perpetuate a great emotional attraction to these values. And it's all it's human psychology. It's all emoting. But there's no substance to it because they've lost it once you have denied and pushed God out of the picture. So this is something we'll come back to again and again, and it's the fatal weakness in the non-Christian. If atheism has a central, central weakness, here it is. This is the juggler vein. No non-Christian can come up with a basis of values. And you can always shove and push until you push them right in the corner, and finally they can't do it. They cannot come up with values that are transcendent. No one has ever done this. So this is a fatal weakness in the other side. And we want to learn where our strengths are, where our weaknesses are. And God doesn't have any weaknesses, but because we are creatures, uh, we are, have weaknesses. And, and part of it is that we are not, so, we are not omniscient. We are not totally, total in knowledge. And so there are things we don't understand about God. And the non-Christian looks at us and he says, oh, well, you can't explain that. Well, no, I can't explain it. If I could explain it, then God that I explained wouldn't be the God of Scripture. Because if I could explain it, that makes my knowledge exhaustive, and then I am God. So obviously I can't explain it all. That's an axiom of what I'm trying to say about the creator-creature distinction. So, God's holiness. And we say down at the end of that paragraph, our experience of conscience, moral judgment, revulsion over evil, and the need for law 
is something like his holiness. That is what's inside of us. And we get into the next chapter, we're going to talk about the difference between the human body and the human spirit. And one of the evidences that all men have a human spirit, whether it's regenerated or not, is the fact that they have these spiritual longings. And there they are, I've named four of them. The experience of conscience, moral judgment, revulsion over evil, and the need for law. Those are things that everyone has. And they flow out of the fact that we are made in God's image, and it's those things that go on inside our souls that are the results of the presence of a created spirit made in God's image in us. And that's why even the non-Christian atheist who denies God winds up doing these four things. Having an experience of conscience, wanting moral judgment, having a revulsion over evil, and having a need for law. It's inescapable. Absolutely inescapable. There's not a person who has ever lived on this planet that hasn't had those four experiences. But they're explainable only because man is made in God's image and reflects through those actions God's holiness. Okay, and we say um, that there's some differences, of course. We, um, we point out that the attribute of holiness is not something... Uh, that last sentence on page 28, it says, actually goes back to the Greek philosophers that I wanted to mention. Um, he doesn't demand something because it is right in itself. Something is right because he demands it. Why do I say that? Why is that pictured as sort of a puzzle? Because that forces your thinking processes to focus on God. He is the standard, and He sets the tone. It's not the fact that we have God, and above God, see, because then we get back to the continuity of being. It's not like we have this standard that's way up here, and then both God and man are underneath the standard. That's wrong. That's not biblical. In the, in the Bible, what we have is that God is the standard. Nothing above God. God is the standard, and we are under the standard. But the standard is his character. All right, let's go on to page 29, and we'll look at two more attributes of God. Again, on the personal side of his character, the attribute of love. Now, if you'll turn in your Bibles to John 17, 24, this is a really critical passage. John 17... Uh, verse 24 because it speaks of this attribute and it speaks in particular of this attribute before the creation event and of course this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus God the Son talking to God the Father and as this conversation proceeds I mean amazing conversation you, you know the, you want to listen in on a conversation this is a conversation. God the Father and God the Son talking to each other. And in verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. Now that this is the last clause, watch this last clause. For thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. Now, we said that all of these attributes of God were exercised without the universe being around. Okay? That's the corollary of the creation. 
And because they were exercised before the creation, here's another example of it being so, that means that the creation doesn't change the character of God. Why do we make a big episode out of this? Because today we face a, a resurgent Islam. And one of the weaknesses in Islam is right here. Islam has a problem. Islam's problem here is that they've got one God who is not triune, who therefore has within himself no, no personal centers. And if he doesn't, who does he love before the universe was created? Where's the object of Allah's love? What could be the object of Allah's love before the universe? Well, so there's nothing. What does he do? Love himself? Or, worse than that, do we say he had to create the universe in order to have an object for his love? Islamic theology doesn't go, quite go that way, but the point is, I think you see, that this attribute of love, according to Scripture, pre-exists the universe. And God doesn't get modified because he created the universe. The universe is not necessary to God's being. But if you have a solitary monotheism without the Trinity, you get in trouble. I just emphasize this because you go around and you think that we Christians are the ones that have to, we have to apologize. It's like we're sort of the weak sisters in all this and we apologize for being, believing in a trinity. No, I don't apologize for believing in a trinity. You ought to apologize because you don't. Anybody that does not believe in the trinity needs to apologize because you've got some serious problems here. And this is one of them, pointing it right out. You do not have a base for love in your God. And it's very interesting. Do you see love as one of the big prime selling points of Islam? No, you don't. And it, it, it's, it's not because they don't want to. It's because the, for, by the resistless force of logic, they can't. Not with a God like Allah. Okay. If continuing on page 29, we have the fact that the quality of love, in the next paragraph, cannot be identical with the human quality of love because his love is never contingent. Our love becomes contingent. All, you know, we have an object for our love. But God, within his own Godhead, has an object for his love. So his love is never contingent. That's what's so powerful about the love of God in the Bible. It is not contingent. And that's why he loves the world. He first loved us. Then we love him. That love was powerful because it was not dependent on our response to it. It was not dependent on any circumstances. It goes on and on and on because it is part of his character to love. Finally, we come to the attribute of omniscience in this list. And with that, I want to take you to Matthew chapter 11. This will become very important in the next chapter we work with um, because this is at the heart and basis of our knowledge. It's the heart and basis of our appeal for the gospel. It's the heart and basis of apologetics. That's the heart and basis of, of science today and the battle that exists between the Bible and parts, uh, what the Bible says and, and what some scientists say. So Matthew 11:21 gives us another example of one of the great attributes of God.
So we've looked at his sovereignty, we've looked at his holiness, we've looked at his love, and the last one we're going to look at is his omniscience. What do we mean by omniscience? Again, on, on page 29, the attribute of omniscience means that God has total knowledge of himself as well as knowledge of all creature things actual and possible. So keep that in mind again. Omniscience was exercised before the creation, before the universe. God has an exhaustive knowledge of himself. Now, who creature, who of us as creatures can claim even exhaustive knowledge of ourselves, let alone God? When Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful, who can know it? We don't, the, the most profound depth psychologist doesn't have exhaustive knowledge of the human soul. But God has exhaustive knowledge of himself. And he also has exhaustive knowledge of all creatures. And then I add actual and possible. Because in Matthew 11, verse 21, 22, and 23, Jesus is saying, Woe unto you, Chorazin, woe unto you, Bethsaida, for the miracles had occurred. Now, here's a hypothetical if to history. Now, if this happened, gee, what would have happened as a result? He's given us one here. If the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago. So there's a what if. Jesus knows all the potentials and what ifs of history. Now, if you return to the, to the uh, paragraph we're working on on omniscience in page 29, I want to read that through carefully because there's several qualities in there like I did with the attribute of holiness that we want to remember. His knowledge is immediate and perfect. Our knowledge is mediated through learning. That's why I, I use that little conundrum. Uh, two people have, uh, there are who have never learned anything. A moron and God. For two obviously different reasons, but God, in that sense in sense of omniscience, has exhaustive, comprehensive knowledge. Our experience of being aware... Now watch this, because there's some qualities here, just like there were with holiness, that will come back to haunt us in chapter 3 when we get into the nature of man. Our experience of being aware that there is a standard of truth, that real knowledge must be somehow universal, that we know by coming to know our mental perceptions of reality and that we can create our imagination is something like the quality of omniscience. I want to go through those four things again. Their awareness of a standard of truth. Language is constructed that way. So it is always referring to a standard of truth. You can't deny a standard of truth without affirming the standard of truth. And that was shown, in, 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 shown numerous times down through history in such, such puzzles, such paradoxes as the Cretan puzzle. And this is why Paul said the Cretans are always liars. Well, there was a famous Cretan who put out this first semantic paradox many, many centuries ago uh, when he said, I am lying. Now, if you think about the statement, I am lying, how do you take that? If it's true, then he's not lying. But if it's false then he must be lying. And it's a very famous semantic puzzle that you get into. And believe it or not, that puzzle of the creation centuries ago have, has led to the 20th century to all kinds of revolution in the way mathematicians have worked and gets into all kinds of problems with understanding language and reasoning. The long and the short of it is that everyone has an implicit knowledge for a standard of truth. Why? 
Because when they go to articulate their position, they're claiming it's true. The fallacy that you get into in high school English classes, taught by college English classes, that all literature must be deconstructed. It must be interpreted in the context of this and so forth. And it's just impossible for an author like Shakespeare or someone like that to communicate truth because after all he's a white male or he's prejudiced against women or he's prejudiced against other races. Or it's impossible that the Jews could have ever written anything true because they're prejudiced against all the Gentiles and so on. The Bible's prejudiced because it was written all by men. And so you have all this structure. But here's the, here's, the, here's the puzzle. If it's really true that all literature has to be deconstructed, then it must be true that the person who says all literature is to be deconstructed, that opinion also has to be deconstructed. See how you take it? You just keep on rolling with it. So it's obvious that all people believe in an absolute universality of truth. Real knowledge must be somehow universal. That's the claim. The English teacher who gets up and says all literature must be deconstructed is claiming that that's true for all literature. What she forget to say is that it's not true for her. It's true for everyone else. Third quality, that we come to know by knowing our mental perceptions. And you know that when you're tired, do you think clearly? You've got to have a clear head to think. We all have that experience. When we're tired, we make mistakes. I have just spent 14 hours working, unraveling a computer system that got screwed up because both myself and my crew were tired. And to solve the problem, we created four other problems that propagated themselves through two computers. And we've been sitting for the last two days going into this thing to try to find out what went wrong, meanwhile blocking all the data flow for the entire proving ground of the Army. And it, it goes back to fatigue. We were not thinking properly. And we panicked, we got on a problem, and we created problem on top of a problem, onion skins. So you can only reach truth when this works. And we think with our equipment. We can create in our imagination. Final point about knowing. That's how artists do their thing. That's how an author does his thing. You ever wonder how Tom Clancy writes his novels? How? You know, it always amazes me. How do these guys write this stuff? Do they really see this going on in their head? Do they do it? Maybe they get part of their story today, and then they go back to the typewriter next week, and, oh, I got another idea. And they have all this going on in their head. It's the power of creative thinking. God creates, too, except the difference between his creative thinking and ours is he speaks his creative thinking, he brings it into existence. Tom Clancy can write a novel. God manufactures the universe. Tom Clancy's ultimate imagination has to do with a fiction. God's imagination has to do with reality because he drives it with his language and his decrees. Okay, we have looked at all these attributes and I indicated in the bottom of page 29 some exercises to do. And uh, we won't go through those. Uh, I think they're pretty obvious, but I do want to try a different approach tonight. So if you have a hymnal, um, if you'll open the hymnal to... Um, Let's say 262. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing. This is a, the one we sang last Sunday. Holy, holy, holy. Now I want you to look, now that we've looked at the attributes of God, how clever and how, how tremendous 
the man who wrote these lyrics was in composing this hymn. Look carefully at the words of the first stanza. Holy, holy, holy. Obviously, you know the attribute there. But now look at the next attribute that he introduces. Lord God Almighty. Attribute of? Omnipotence. Okay? This is worship. How do these attributes, how do they work? In that exercise at the bottom of the page, I applied this thing to problems in life. But what I'm doing now by going to the hymn book is showing it applies to worship. Holy, holy, holy. There's one attribute. See how worship flits from one attribute of God in amazement to another attribute of God in amazement to another attribute of God. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. And then it goes on the next one. All the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Um, notice in the third one, though the darkness hide thee, incomprehensibility. Though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man, his holiness there, thy glory may not see. And then it concludes with Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name. There's the creation. And so forth. But do you see how the attributes of God are present in real worship? By doing that, what has the hymn writer done for us? You know what he's done for us and why the hymns like that are so powerful? It's because he has moved our center of focus away from us onto who God is. And that's the goal of worship. And that's why successful worship does that. And that's the only thing that helps in the pains of life. Is that you can sit there and you just get yourself buried in a big depression looking at the problem. You've got to look away from the problem. And it's hard to do that sometimes. And that's why worship is so, real worship is so refreshing. Because it's like a thirsty creature drinks fresh water. At last I can see these attributes of God because I live down here as a creature. I'm finite. I have some analogies to this. But every time I contemplate God and these attributes, they feed me. It's like rain from heaven. They feed my soul. So this is why we want to be clear as Christians who our God is like. Now, we, we, we handed out last time the next section, which concludes our chapter 2, on idolatry. And there are just some observations we want to make here. One is that I introduce it in the first paragraph with John's statement, little children, keep yourself from idols. <laughs> and if you look in the context, John is talking about the genuineness of Jesus Christ. That he is the genuine God. And that, that, keep, that repetitious of that, that Greek word there for true or genuine, obviously he's belaboring the, the vocabulary word. So what happens in your mind is you always think of the antonym, the opposite. If Jesus is the authentic and genuine, then what's the phony? And the phony is the idols. Idols are phonies. But they're phony and counterfeit mimics of God. Now, how do you make an idol to mimic God? You make an idol to mimic God by mimicking his attributes. It's precisely these qualities that make idols attractive in our mind's eye. If, for example, in the middle paragraph on page 30, I always say, always involved in idolatry are powerful pictures in our imagination. And uh, that's why the second commandment. 
And that is the next paragraph. Even as Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving God's word, the people of Israel quickly sought an idol to provide for their needs. Note how Aaron claimed that the new golden calf was the God of the Exodus. This is your God, or is this? This is the way he introduced the idol. This is the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The golden calf took upon itself God's delivering glory. That's why idolatry is theft. It's thievery. Idols are fake collections of these attributes. Misunderstood, misapplied, convoluted, twisted, but nevertheless, an idol out here mimics God. However, because the idol is made by man, it gets around the problem that C.S. Lewis spoke about, and I quoted earlier, remember that delightful little section from the Narnia Chronicles, when Lucy asks, is Aslan safe? And the answer came back from Mr. Beaver is, no, Aslan is not safe, but he's good. And that was just Lewis's neat way of putting the fact that God is incomprehensible, he's not bound, he's not on a leash, you're not going to control him, and so he's not safe. But what are idols? They're safeguards because they're made by man. They're things that can be understood by man, they're created products of man's imagination, and they always are, in one sense, even though people, they're supposed to be sometimes incarnated demons and people worship them, but in another sense, all the idols are safe because they are comprehensible. They are made. Man fashioned them. And if you want a central polemic in Scripture, you might want to write these Scriptures down. Isaiah 40, Isaiah 41, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 43, Isaiah 44. All those 40 chapters in Isaiah is when the Holy Spirit spoke to Isaiah to prepare the Jewish people for living in an idolatrous society. And that's where that came out. So you can see that very powerfully in that passage. Well, if you look down on the quote on page 30... A student of idolatry, Kenneth, Dr. Kenneth Hamblin, wrote several years ago. But this quote is so, it captures why idolatry is not just something that happened in Aaron's day, but it happens in our day. Just as polytheism continued in an underground form through the Middle Ages and lives on today in modern cults of witchcraft and Satanism, the imagination of Western man, and, and you might not want to underline this, very important. The imagination of Western man was never fully Christianized. I, I, here's why I, I want you to see this. The way we're taught in school is that there was a period of time when the church dominated society, and we call that the Dark Ages. Notice, by the way, who called the Middle Ages the Dark Ages? You know who did? It was the rationalists. So right away... Everybody that sits in this history class is prejudiced against the Christian faith. When the church did dominate society, and it did, in the Middle Ages, that's the Dark Ages. And what do we call the age after the Dark Ages? When men finally rejected the church and had their autonomous thinking, we call that the age of the Enlightenment. Well, who, who took those labels? See? See, so this is how the propaganda all starts. Middle Ages weren't that bad, folks. There's a lot of baloney. Middle Ages had some good things about them. Middle Ages, the, the Christians had quite a bit of good things to say. Yeah, there were crusades and a few other things. And they always liked to talk about the Inquisition later on and so forth. So, yeah, people got killed in the Inquisition. Compare it to how many people got killed under communism with Joe Stalin. 
You want to compare numbers? I'll compare numbers with you. You've got to move your decimal place a few places compared to that one. So the point is that we learn history through prejudicial comments, mislabels. But there's one thing that is true, and this is the point I'm making here, is that as much as the church did dominate Europe in the Middle Ages, it never totally dominated. Never totally dominated. And Western man was never fully Christianized. The modern idolatrous imagination still refuses to believe that the promises of the living God are sure and His grace is sufficient for all our needs. It still looks to other powers and other authorities for support and guidance. And notice this last sentence by Dr. Hamilton. Transferring to them what belongs to the Creator alone. Okay? That's the clue to idolatry. Now, if John, John the Apostle is telling us, little children, keep yourself from idols, what we need to do as we think about what we've learned in these attributes, they become checkpoints to examine our hearts and to look in our own hearts for idols. Hence, one of the exercises that we, we have in the end of this section. Uh, there's two paragraphs on the top of page 31. I mentioned what some of these idols today are. They're rampant. They're all over the place. You have the more academic ones in the first paragraph. They're historicism like Marxism that mimic God's sovereign plan. There are naturalism like evolution that mimics God's sovereignty omnipotence. There are humanisms that defy humanity. There are mammons that value all things in terms of monetary wealth. There are statisms that transfer God's sovereignty omnipotence and totalitarian civil government. If the world doesn't have enough idolatries, our fleshly minds are capable of generating hundreds more. A friend, a family, a marriage, a preacher, a business, a career, each one serves as a God replacement that for a while appears to meet our needs. And that's the other thing. That's how the little informal idols get started. John says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Because our minds have a hard time, apart from their Holy Spirit, of keeping focus right here very hard. We can sit up here and draw diagrams and yak-yak about all the attributes of God, but when it comes to everyday living, it's very hard to be reminded of what kind of a God it is with whom we have to do. And that's what this battle is all about. It's a battle over the mind and where that mind is focusing, where it's directed. So we go down and how, how do we handle this? Well, I want to take you to 1 Corinthians 8 because there's a, a very clear situation where a local church had a problem with new believers who had been raised in idolatrous society. And there's a neat method that Paul uses there to handle this problem in the congregation. It's a real-life story. Remember, this is the story in the New Testament epistle. That these believers, the new believers, they were, had, had associated food, certain food, certain meat, best meat in town, was served in, in temples. And so they associated all this meat with the, with the idol, idolatry that was going on. And so when Christians had the freedom to eat whatever they wanted to eat, they'd go ahead and they'd eat this. And these new believers weren't quite ready to do that because it was offensive to them, because they said, how can you as a Christian do that when there's these idols? But, but the idols were nothing. And that's why when Paul talks about it, he says in verse 5, 
if their so-called gods were in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods made lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father. But in verse 7 he says, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol eat food as if it were sacrificed to the idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. In verse 4, if you look back up there, he clearly says there's no such thing as these gods. But there's a power that these beliefs have in the heart. And Paul recognizes that there are, there's, there's dominion of power that goes on with these images. And Paul says that you can't just come to this person and say, these are the attributes of God. Those things don't exist. But in their heart, the imagination still exists. There's like a, an ideological momentum that keeps on going in the heart. And notice that Paul allows these people a little space. You see, instead of peer pressure by fellow believers and forcing conformity, what Paul prays is, look, give them a little space. And then, of course, we know those famous prayers in, in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 where he prays for the enlightenment of the heart as they learn more of the Word. But the key is that the people obey what they know and can believe to be true. And it gets back to conscience, which in the next chapter we'll see why. Conscience is that inner conviction that something is true. And it doesn't always work. In these cases, the conscience, he said, is weak. The conscience doesn't really testify that they can eat that meat. So they shouldn't. They shouldn't. If they can't do it by faith, then don't do it. Now, that is a, is a mirror of, God, of, of Paul's approach that he, ins he preaches always to the conscience and says, before you act, before you believe, in your heart, you must personally be convinced this is true. And if you're not convinced, don't you do this because of me, because of something else, because your mother told you to do it, because of some peer pressure. You do it because you believe it to be true. You might want to write this verse down, Romans 14.23. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Slightly different context. But the principle is that you, tr you can only trust what your conscience at your existing status in spiritual growth gives you permission to believe. It's a respect for truth. Now, why do you suppose there's almost like a hesitancy by Paul to do this? Here's why. Because if conscience is the okayer of faith, Paul wants these people to walk by faith. He doesn't want them to walk by feeling. He doesn't want to, them to walk by peer pressure. He wants to build genuine faith. And that genuine faith happens because the Holy Spirit speaks to the heart. There's that inner conviction, this is true. He wants to encourage that personal trust that this is true. That's why we talk about apologetics. We don't want ourselves to be weak. We don't want to walk around as though we're apologizing for our faith that, gee, we hope the gospel is true. No. We know the gospel is true. We feel sorry for the other people that don't. They're fools. So, there's an emphasis in gospel preaching by Paul on the conscience. Note how he, how he does this. Um, I think I have two verses I picked out after I wrote this. Probably can't find it now. Um, no, I, I put them in the next chapter. We'll get to it in the next chapter. In the book of Acts, he's when you, you hear Paul talking, he talks about the fact that he appeals 
to conscience. One of these does occur, and I remember it. In second, uh, if you turn to Second Corinthians chapter five, here's the, here's the kind of method that Paul uses to focus attention on the true character of God. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse eleven. Notice he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are manifest to God, and I hope we are made manifest to your consciences. The gospel is true, and we want people to believe it because it's true, not because you had an emotional experience, not because of something else. All these may be true, or may have accompanied this, but the central thing has to be on the God with whom we have to do. And if I don't get our attention on God and who He is, you cannot understand the cross of Christ. Now let's think about that for a minute. Let's, let's go back and review these attributes we've learned. Why is it we want to avoid idols? Because idols twist this. Idols always replace God's attributes in some way, shape, or form. Idols promise that our needs are going to be met by something other than the true God. And whatever this other than is, it's, it has an appeal. I mean, it wouldn't be an idol if it didn't have an appeal. So it's falsifying some of God's attributes. It appears to be like God. Enough such that it deflects us. And what we want to do is we want to look at Him. If we confuse these attributes, we confuse who we are to start with. We can't even make a diagnosis of the problem, leave alone a solution in the gospel. We can't even diagnose what the problem is. If we don't have the standards, we don't have God as the standard for our lives. Later on, we we'll mention the fact that it would be an interesting challenge if you happen to be interested in psychology and you get into these little tests, you know, personality profile tests and they corporations give these to their employees to see how whether they're stable or not and this and that. You know, it would be very interesting to calibrate the test. Well, how do you calibrate the test? How do psychologists calibrate that? Well, they do controls and they have statistics and so forth. But have you ever thought as a Christian how you really should calibrate a psychology test? Give it to Jesus. If Jesus is God incarnate, then his behavior should be normative. And therefore, the, the, the test of the test would be to see how it evaluates Jesus as we know him in the Gospels. And I had a friend who did this one time, and the exam characterized him as an extremist. So what does that tell you about the test? Got a problem here. If you're testing the test on the ideal piece of humanity that sin less and the test screws up, then it's the test problem. Like the Minnesota test years ago, they used to knock off points if you admitted that you prayed. Well, can you imagine applying that test to Jesus in the four Gospels? Every time he prays, cross off five more points of this guy. He's warped. So you come out with these personality profiles that mean nothing because they're not calibrated. And in my work, whenever we make measurements, we calibrate. I can't go out here and tell you the per pressure is such and such unless I've calibrated that instrument. And I've got to calibrate my instrument to an instrument that's ten times better than the instrument I'm using. And that instrument has to be calibrated to another instrument that's ten times better than that. Every time, it's a decade increase when you, you calibrate instrumentation. 
and the whole world has to agree on the unit of measure. Or my measurements don't fit his. So this gets back to what are our calibration standards? The attributes of God. Keep this in mind. Because when we get into evaluating the knowledge of man, we're going to see that it's uncalibrated. It's floating. It's not anchored to any standard because it's not being actively anchored to the attributes of God. And any kind of claims of knowledge that do not calibrate to God's character are not, they're just floating claims. All right, we concluded this section with a little exercise, and I just encourage you to um, try this on for size when you have chance. The first uh, little exercise there on page 32 is a simple listing of idols that tempt you. And here's how to find them. Look at what attributes of God's nature that are easy for you to forget and examine what's going on up here in your head in your imagination when these attributes get fuzzy when it's difficult for you to trust his love when it's difficult for you to trust that he works all things after the counsel of his hill what's going on in your head what are the imaginations that float around there when you're having trouble perceiving this part of God that's where the battleground is by thinking through these attributes they almost act like a flashlight to weed out stuff in your thinking. But it takes time and peace and quiet to do it. Now, we have looked at, at uh, seven or eight of these attributes, and I encourage you the fact that there are many more you will find. You can look in a concordance. You can look up all kinds of adjectives for God. And I also encourage you that there are such a, a wonderful study. Kay Arthur has a little thing on this, but not the only one, and that's the names of God. God names himself. And when he goes to name himself, he's, he's expressing his attributes. So look at the names of God in the scriptures. Take a concordance and look up what these names mean. Look up in a good Bible dictionary what these names mean. And that you can spend weeks just taking one name of God, look up every instance of that name, all the references, and look what was going on when God called himself El Shaddai or when God called himself El Elyon or something like this. What, what, what was going on in the context? And you'll see that those names reflect patterns of these attributes. And God thought so much of revealing these things about himself that that's why he gave himself a name and said, I want you to call me by those names. Because when you call me by those names, you're thinking in terms of whatever those attributes are that are involved in that name and the revelation of them. Okay, well, next week you have a section. We will, we'll meet next week and then we'll take a break for Christmas and so on. But we'll meet next week. In chapter 3, looking forward to it, um, we're going to deal with a new difference. Now, we've dealt so far with the difference between the creator and the creature. And I think I've belabored that point long enough. So, now I want to start with another distinction. And we're going to go back to that old diagram again, the continuity of being, and I'm going to show you that as we battle as Christians to preserve the creator-creature distinction, right now in our day, we're battling to preserve the man-nature distinction. Only three weeks ago, there was a conference held, I think it was in Ohio, by members of the biology community, in which they seriously petitioned to the United Nations 
for, hum, uh, for a human rights legislation that would include as humans certain species of the chimpanzee. And that it would be now an act of murder to kill a chimpanzee. And the reason and basis of doing this was because the DNA structure of the chimpanzee is 97% identical to the, to the DNA structure of the human being. So therefore, based on the similarity argument, we include chimpanzees along with humans. And we, we, we die out, we flush out this man-nature distinction. So that's the background of where we're going. And we want to see who we are as people. And I think there's some pretty amazing things. You're going to go into Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the narrative, read it again. And we're going to start looking at what happened when God created man. What were some things that he did back then that set us off against nature? And then we're going to deal with these so-called similarity arguments. And we're going to answer the similarity arguments on the basis of Scripture. Father, we thank you for our time tonight and we pray that you would, again, take these truths that you have revealed to us in Scripture and make them real in our hearts. And like Paul, we pray that you would enlarge our hearts, that we could know the height and the depth and the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Mike. Uh, good question. The question is, why do we classify omniscience as, as communicable and omnipotence and omnipresence as incommunicable? Very good question. And it, it has more to do, uh, Mike, with sloppy labels that theologians create um, than any... It's not... Those labels are relative labels, not absolute labels. It's just that the incommunicable attributes are attributes that are more, are the incommunicable attributes are attributes that are less similar to ourselves as persons. In the sense, omniscience, we know. Uh, so our knowing, our reasoning, our thinking processes are, are analogous to his thinking processes and his omniscience. Whereas when we start thinking in terms of omnipotence and omnipresence, uh, yes, we, are, we have energy and yes, we take up space, but it, it's kind of uh, pitifully small. So the distance between his great omnipotence and our little puny power is so great that theologians' characteristic... I didn't invent that. It's just it's a characteristic division. And that's why they do it. And when they mean incommunicable, they just mean it's, it's harder to think about. So it's, it's not an absolute distinction. And it, you, you can forget it. You don't have to worry about the labels. It's just that it do, it, it's a tool to make you think a little bit about the attributes on the right side there are a little bit more uh, like people. Not that they're any more important. All the attributes are important. But it's just those are a little bit easier to understand. A little bit more similar to what we are as people. That's all. When we get into the area of science coming up in chapter 3, that's when you get over into here because then your units of measure and so on are often the side. Length, height, depth, pound, weight, force. Uh, those all tend to be characterized by these impersonal attributes. Okay, anything else? We snowed everybody or nobody has any questions? <laughs> any questions? 
One of the things that we, we, we want to emphasize when we're going through this is that um, this is not to neglect Scripture, by the way. This is not to say that this is the only way of doing it. I just throw this out as an invitation to, for you to experiment with that if you will feast on these attributes in the middle of a problem or imagine a problem, uh, maybe forearm yourself thinking in terms of a problem out there that someday you may get yourself into or find yourself enveloped in and start breaking that problem apart by concentrating these attributes. It's almost, you could almost say that exercise is like worshipping your way through the problem. Because what these attributes do when you can focus on them is that they cut problems down to size. You know, we get, sit here and we get depressed and here we are and here's this big problem. And you get so overwhelmed by it, so, so crushed by something. And you just say, oh, gee, you know, it's all over. But if you can take that very thing that's so big and so ponderously heavy and depressing and start putting it right up against the attributes of God and say, all right, now just a second here. Is this problem something that is beyond the capacity of God in his power who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think? Is this problem something that is so... God is so far away that he doesn't have any kind of sense of what's going on right here on my piece of turf. Wait a minute. What are we talking about? God is omnipresent. That in Psalm 139, he is in front of me, he is behind me. If I go to hell, he is there. If I ascend into heaven, he is there. And he's not in my space? Of course he's in my space. He's in my space because he is omnipresent. Well, this problem is so bad that uh, I, I just can't see how God can work in it. Did God work in the Old Testament to flood the world to get rid of a problem? You know, you can look at, at Noah's floods. He flushed the whole earth down the toilet. What he did. Started all over again. Now, any God that can flush the planet, can he solve my problem? And see, that's what I mean, Go, to almost talking to your soul. And like you see David do in the Psalms, how he talks to himself. It's not crazy to talk to yourself. Uh, and talk to your soul about these things. Activate it. So that's an exercise that can be done. And you'll find it's, it's strengthening to do that. And when you, when you put this big problem up, it's just like it puts a pin in it and it at least deflates it down somewhat. Uh, to manageable proportions. But I find it's a way of bracketing problems so they don't get totally out of hand. It's just an exercise. It's not a gimmick, but it's just an exercise using these attributes. And it's almost it's just every area of life you can use them in. In fact, I had one person that uh, years and years ago was a new Christian. And they said, you know what? If I know that, I don't even have to know the rest of the Bible. Well, now that's an exaggeration. We do have to know the rest of the Bible because the rest of the Bible gives content to the, all of those attributes. But what they meant was that when you fasten onto what's going on here, they become powerful tools for us as God's children because they're means of running to Him, running to our Father, and rejoicing in who our Father is. He's like that. You know, my daddy's like that.
And that's the, the, the comforting part of these attributes. Okay, anything else? Yes, Mike. Okay, let's take that one. Uh, we've got a problem tossed out here. Let, let's, let's collectively work on this because it's common to all of us. You experience a loss of a loved one. Either it's a ruptured relationship, so it's a loss in a relationship, or it's even more profound, it's a loss because physically you've lost them. Now, thinking in terms of that gnawing feeling in your heart, and the loss, the, 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 all the kinds of th the thoughts that go on when that happens. I mean, I can remember the day I got a call, my father died. And I can remember the thoughts in my head. Um, then I can remember the day that I got a call, my mother died. And I can remember saying to Carol, uh, she was asking me how I feel, and I said, I just feel so alone. Now, she was, right, I mean, she was only inches away from me. Why did I say I felt alone? Well, I felt alone because I'm an only child. I'm the end of the family. So that's what I was talking about. But those feelings, what, what do you do to rule them so they don't rule you? You rule them. Okay, let's, let's throw it open for a little discussion here for a few minutes. before We, we got five minutes or so. So let's just go through this. We know those attributes of God. So let's have some suggestions. Either you or a friend has lost a loved one. Now looking at this, uh, actually all the attributes apply, but let's, let's maybe different people have, have different uh, perceptions here of how you would we'd connect. Taking these attributes how would we use them as vehicles to get our minds thinking properly so that as we, as we work through our grief, and when we're going to have grief, and by the way, these don't make grief go away in the sense it just evaporates it. it. It controls it. It rules. So grief is ruled, not eliminated, but ruled and managed. So let's, let's think about what are some attributes. Let's, let's throw it up for discussion. Anyone? What, what would be a suggestion? How would you suggest a person? Say Mike's asking you. He's lost a loved one. So now, how would you think about that, allowing your mind to, to, to soak in a certain aspects of God's character? Okay. All right, yes, good point. So maybe we're, maybe we're violating the thing that I often warn against. We're answering the question before we understand what the question is. That's a good point. Let's think more about the question. All right, let's, let's take what Mike's just saying here and let's work it down to it's a sense that you, the person that you've lost is more of a companion situation. So now you've lost someone that loves you. So you, you in many senses... You, you've, re you've rejoiced in that relationship um, and now, now there's a grieving process. So, 
attribute of God. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, good. Okay. All right, that's good. And uh, of course, I was I was expecting someone to say, "Well, the attribute of love," but that's good because that's one of the things that insidiously creeps in that you have to come to terms with in every grieving situation. Is it fair? Because if you don't come to grips with that, you have problems with everything else. Because what happens? What, you, what happens to our souls if we, in a grieving situation, can't? By conscience. And, 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 you know, like we said, sometimes it's hard to get to that point. You can't fake this. This is not fakery. It may take days. It may take weeks. Hopefully not. But it may take time to, to do exactly this. To come to a sense, this is okay. God was not being a meanie. God did not pick on me. And the more, of course, we know of Scripture, we get into the fall of man, we get into why history goes the way it goes, and so on. But we're going back here to the attribute of holiness. And that's correct. That is a fundamental tool to manage grief with. Again, it doesn't mean that we become a zombie. It doesn't mean we don't shed tears. It doesn't mean we don't have feelings. It just means that we don't allow the tears and the grief and the feelings to just zap us out of, out of it living right. So that's good. Fundamental thing here. God's holiness. Anybody else have? That's, that's a good, good creative approach. Yes. Okay. How do you do that? Eternal. Okay. At the larger, that's it. See, now this is interesting. Every person here, you see what happens? See how, how interesting manifold this thing is. I'll bet you we went through this room tonight. Each one of you would have a, a, a piece of this. And you see how God works in different situations. We're all working out of the same trust in our Lord. But it's parts and aspects of his character that fit. Now, what Debbie's talking about is going back and looking at the fact that life goes... You know, we have this little trite expression, well, life goes on. Well, in this sense, life has been, is now, and will forever go on. And it puts it in a, in a bigger light. So that's great. There's using eternality to expand the focus. Because grief tends to you go like this. You get wiped out, you look at yourself, becomes a one big long pity party. And what we're doing here is we're taking the mind out like this, so it doesn't become just me, 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 me. Anything else? Yes, Tom. Mm-hmm. 
may not realize it in our generation, but it may, we may or may not, but it may take one generation, two generations to affect the order of Okay, I think in terms of a, of a specific illustration, maybe? Well, everything you do and everything you say uh, affects someone no matter how you know, large the content or how small. Mm-hmm. But you know, throughout the Bible, uh, what you do will affect generations to come. So, uh, you know, a loss of a loved one, uh, who knows, uh, your children may reflect back on that. Can they see how you cope with that situation? And also, okay, the modeling effect that people who you could sit to, write letters to, give tapes to, give books to, and do all that, and it no comprende, never gets up here. But all of a sudden, a modeling situation where they see you encounter a situation and they know what they do in the middle of the situation and all of a sudden they see something of the Lord's power working there. It becomes a powerful preaching device. It becomes a testimony and a tool. Okay, well I think we all have to... Everybody looks so tired tonight. Um, we, uh, we, we pretty well exhausted this in the sense of, of getting at least to the, to the top of looking at how just these simple truths we've covered. Just these simple, all, if you think about it, all we have done is do one, two, three, four, eight attributes of God. And there's lots more. But all we've done is eight, and already I think you can see, by just using these truths and focusing upon them, the effects they have in, again, managing our lives in faith before Him. Okay, well next week we'll have our last time before Christmas, and. Uh, We'll go ahead with that chapter, um, chapter three.